chapter 3 is where we're going to be in the Word today. And welcome to week 11 of a series that has us walking through the book of Colossians, or actually a letter um, written by the Apostle Paul, a letter that lifts high the supremacy of Christ, that He is the absolute supreme one. There is none higher than Christ, but also He is a sufficient one, meaning that He is enough for our salvation. He's enough to keep us, to sustain us in the midst of, of this world. And before I get started, let me just give a special thank you to those that de- delivered the word in my absence. I want to say a special thank you to, to Jordan and to Brother Curtis who brought the word I'm in my absence and so thankful for that, that we can know that um, this pulpit, there's going to be a Bible here and people are going to be pointed to, to Christ and so thankful for that. And then last week I heard that Jordan let you out a little early. So I'm going to be using some rollover minutes today. So just so, is that how it works? So rollover minutes are going to happen um, today in our, in our time uh, together. So I uh, just wanted to be up front with you in that. So that's coming. Um, but here's what I want to lay before us right out of the gate um, this morning. The First Baptist Church of Ocean Way is being sustained right now and will continue to be led in the future, not by a personality but by the Word of God. Meaning that we are not pointing people to a specific personality or type of personality. We are pointing people to God through His Word. And that's what we want to do every single week. We don't want there ever to be a time where we go, well, oh man, Micah's not preaching today. Or, um, oh man, Micah's preaching today. I never have those moments. We want to always, no matter who is up here, know that we are getting the Word of God, being pointed to the Word of God, um, and that we are handling the Word of God in a correct way where God receives the glory. I love the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And let me just go ahead and apologize. Some of the slides, the words are hard to understand or to see. Sorry, so that is on me. My bad. But uh, we'll, we'll get through it anyway. But he says this, The church is always to be under the word. She must be. We must keep her there. You must not assume that because the church started correctly, she will continue so. She did not do so in the New Testament times. She has not done so since. Without being constantly reformed by the word, the church becomes something very different. We must always keep the church under the word. So that's the point. We know and recognize this. As I said earlier, we do not, in our own natures, we we do not gravitate to godliness. Nor do we gravitate to holiness. We gravitate away from godliness. We gravitate away from from God. That's our natural inclination, our natural desire. But as we come under the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, we continue, are continually brought closer to Him. So let me just lay out where we're headed this morning by giving you four words um, that we will be confronted with in the nine verses that we are going to cover um, this morning. Those four words are this, marriage, parenting, employment, and slavery. Yay! Um, I mean, I feel like the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, like, like marriage, parenting, employment, and slavery, oh my. Uh, it's kind of where we're going um, today. And to make it more awkward, one of the ideas that we're going to be looking at is um, when it comes to marriage is the biblical idea of submission. And uh, so we've got a lot of work to do today. And the direction that we're heading in the word will not be easy for most of us. But let me just say this, I believe it has the potential to be beneficial for all of us. For God's word is extremely beneficial. And if we apply it to our lives in the way that it is supposed to be applied, it is for our good, um, not for our harm. So 
Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, all the way to chapter 4 and verse 1. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. And before I read that first sentence, I'm just going to remind you, this is Paul writing here. Just think about this, the words of God. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So Paul's just coming out swinging. Um, Then he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Oh God, we need you. We need your spirit, Father. We thank you for your word. Lord, we don't want to diminish your word. We don't want to belittle your word. We don't want to make apologies for your word. This is your word. And your word endures forever. And Lord, your word does not need our apologies. Your word does not need our spin on it, God. Your word needs to be proclaimed. And needs to be obeyed. And Father, today that's what we desire. We want to proclaim your word for what it is. And we want to do what it says by your help, by your grace, for your glory. Just have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So let me just begin this morning just by um, bringing some of you back and some of you way back um, to one of the most error-defining movies of my childhood. That movie is called The Karate Kid. Some of you understand or remember that. It was a story about a kid who got beat up by the bully. And then in the process, he meets this older Japanese man who teaches him how to succeed in life using karate. So you know this story. You've you've seen it. You've watched the movie. But as a kid, it was awe-inspiring. It was awesome. One of the most captivating things as a child is how Mr. Miyagi taught Daniel how to fight. So this young boy comes over to Mr. Miyagi's house expecting to be trained in all of the ways of karate, only to be given mundane chores by Mr. Miyagi. He had to wash the cars, wax on, wax off. He had to sand the deck. He had to to paint the, the fence. He had to do all of these things. And Daniel does it continuously. And then he gets sick and tired of it and wants to quit. And then Mr. Miyagi shows him that in using all of these mundane things, he has learned the basic motions of karate, and he will be made a karate champion. I mean, it's very real life. I mean, this is everything about this is just absolutely awesome. And then in thinking about it, I was brought to something that really just crumbled the whole movie in my mind, is that the whole movie ends with this amazing karate kick um, scene, crane kick at the very end, and come to find out it was an illegal move that should not have counted, so Daniel should have lost the whole thing. So I just want to be a blessing to you and ruin the movie that it was edited terribly and Daniel should have lost. So just throw that out there. Um, The movie is rigged. It's terrible. Let's throw it out. But let me bring it back around and say this. 
The Apostle Paul, in a very weird kind of way, when we get to Colossians chapter 3, does the same exact thing as that Mr. Miyagi kind of begins to do. When you think about taking these things and making them and producing something else, and what Paul does is, is says, hey, there's three relationships that all of us are in or will be pursuing, and that is marriage, that is parenting, and that is employment or some form of work. And the, the point becomes, how can we use those relationships, how can we enter into those relationships supernaturally um, to make us more like God? How, how can that happen in our lives? And it doesn't happen accidentally. You know, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens on, on purpose. And what we know is that in these relationships, in our marriage relationships, parenting relationships, even our, our job relationships, we learn an important quality, a quality that even Jesus himself um, displayed in his time on earth, and that quality is submission. You know, we don't like to think of Jesus that way, but Jesus himself submitted to the will of the Father while at the same time claiming equality with the Father. So his submission didn't take away from his equality. So keep that in mind because we're going to be coming um, back to that. But the overall picture is that we are a people who are called to submit ourselves to our king. He is the king. We are his subjects. He is the one that has the right um, and he has the authority to give us commands and to demand our allegiance. Commands that exist for our good. Commands that exist for his glory. And we want to do them. We want to do them so that he may be glorified. So what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack three truths that will help us, by God's grace, to transform our homes, future homes, all for the glory of God. So the picture today is um, what, what Christ-centered households um, look like. And I pray that's something that we desire or will desire um, and, and really want to get after. So the first truth is this. We must cultivate, cultivate excuse me, our greatest earthly relationship. We must cultivate our greatest earthly relationship, with, which is marriage. It is marriage. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. And let me just lay this out there this morning. Marriage is not a human invention. Meaning, it did not come from the mind of man. Marriage is a creation of God. Meaning, it came from the very heart of God. It's where marriage came from. Therefore, Man cannot change the definition or the purpose of marriage to suit our own will or our own whims, whatever that might be. Just think about this. And, and some of you are going to see where I'm going with this, and it's very clear. If you take something as central as the basic foundation or foundational building block of our society, which is what marriage is, and if you begin to unravel it, if you begin to deconstruct it, and then you begin to put it back together in a perverse way, what you have done is you have started something, the ramifications of which are going to absolutely not only destroy our culture, but destroy society as a whole. And that's exactly what has happened in our culture. In fact, in the next point, I'm going to say this. Because we think so small about marriage, what we have done is we have destroyed our children. We've destroyed our children. Never a time in our history have our children been more psychologically, emotionally scarred and damaged as they are right now. And it's because of what takes place in the home. Just throwing it out there. That is the, the absolute picture. And so 
let me get back to this whole idea of marriage. The whole, the ultimate thing that we see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing. In Genesis 2, it was God who said, it is not good that man should be alone. God declared that. It was God who set the design of creation for marriage, one man, one woman. It was God who made woman, in a sense, fathering her. It was God who brought the woman to Adam, in a sense, walking her down the aisle and giving her away as the father, as the first bride. It was God who spoke the design of marriage into existence, meaning a monogamous, heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman where there are children born, and through those children the earth is filled with the knowledge of God. And then it was God who performed the one flesh union between a woman and a man, or a man and a woman. So the, the point is, God is the initiator of all of this. None of this happened because we said, oh, this might be good. No, God is initiating, doing it all. And so here's the point. The world doesn't know this. That's why the world has such a low view of marriage. And if we're going to be honest, many professing Christians don't know this and don't believe this or think of this. Therefore, we don't hold as high a standard of marriage as we ought to. But what we know from the word of God is that marriage is from God. Marriage is through God. Marriage is for God. So God has designed marriage to work in a specific way and to paint a clear and beautiful picture of the gospel to the world. But let me just say this. What God designed, sin disordered. Meaning what God made for this purpose, sin messed it up. Or as we sang in Vacation Bible School, sin messed everything up. Everything up, everything up. It's a, it's a very biblical, childlike Truth, sin messed it all up. In fact, right after sin entered the world, God appears to Eve and says this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Now, as a man, I'm going to try not to touch that one at all, um, because I know very little about that. All I do know is that when Morgan was born, I get the call, I go to the hospital, Missy's already hooked up to everything, and I approach her and I said, baby, I am here for you. What do you need from me? And she looked at me, and I promised with about um, 10 octaves lower, she said, get away from me. Your cologne makes me sick. And I said, I'll be in the corner. If you, if you need anything, uh, I will throw it to you in love. And uh, then, of course, the epidural happened, and she became a completely different person. She said, come here, come here. And I approached with caution, thinking she was like just sucking me in in order to rip my head off. But thankfully, the, the epidural worked, and it helped in that way. But that was a, a picture and a cause of sin. So there you go. I'm... Okay, and then it goes on. I mean, this is my experience. But then, then God says this, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Meaning that the curse of sin is that woman or women would rebel against the headship of her husband and that with that, the man would then try to rule, aggressively rule over his wife to put her back in her place. So the woman trying to take the headship of man and the man saying, that's not going to happen and I will beat you back down into submission. And thus is the essence of sin. Now, here's what we know about marriage. 
when you put two sinners in a house together, there's going to be conflict. It's what we know about marriage. There will be conflict. Marriage is the easy part. It's living together that makes it difficult. When you have to live together, it gets a little hard. I mean, it doesn't matter if you both love the Lord. It doesn't matter how much you love each other. There's just going to be areas where conflict is going to happen. There's just going to be times where she or he will become sandpaper to you and you will have enough. I mean, it's just that picture. It is going to happen. Yet, amen, amen to that. Yet, yet the, the question becomes um, for us is how do we get through the conflict and how do we get to the goal? You know, how do we get through the conflict and get to the beauty of marriage the way God designed it to be? And here's the confusing reality. The confusing reality is that when addressing the relationship between a husband and wife, the Bible never starts with the man. The Bible always starts with the woman. It always starts with wives first. And the question becomes, why? And let me just, the best I can give my answer, and you can take it for what it's worth, but no man can lead a woman who refuses to follow him. You just can't. If there's not a work there of God, there's nothing that the man can do. Yet the, the clear biblical prescription is that the woman should love the man by submitting, and I use that word very clearly, by submitting to his gentle, sacrificial, loving leadership of her. And I'm going to unpack that in just a few moments, but I, I get it. I get the idea of submission is not a wildly popular idea in our culture, yet the biblical picture of submission is not one that's rooted in superiority of the husband, nor is it rooted in inferiority of the wife. When we get to Genesis 2 and God says to Adam, I'm going to make you a helpmate, a helper, comparable a helpmate that's going to um, come in and do everything you can't. The, the picture there is the word helper doesn't imply inferiority. In fact, in the Old Testament, majority of times that that word helper is used, it is used to describe God helping us. And just so you know, in case you somehow forgot it, God is not inferior to us. He is superior to us. And in his superiority, he has still, in his grace, saw fit to help us. Isn't that good for us? Amen. He has saw fit to help us. So let me just be clear real quick of what submission is not. Submission doesn't mean that the male dominates and he is like Tarzan. The wife is Jane and every time he grunts, she has to come running and she has to have um, dinner prepared when he gets home or everything's going to be chaotic in the house and every whim, every desire, every wish that he has, she must cater to it because he is the superior one. That's not what it means. In fact, in the same way, it doesn't mean that ladies, you should never, ever put yourself in a situation where you might be harmed by a man that's not what submission means submission doesn't mean that you endure in the midst of physical or even verbal atrocities doesn't mean that I was reading a few years ago it was a beautiful reading of the first century church and I couldn't believe I read it but it was a prescription to what pastors should do in certain situations and it said this if a pastor suspects that a woman in his church is being abused um, in any way, what he should do is he should um, 
select four stout men and should pay that man a visit. I mean, let's go. Let's go get it done. But the point is, that's not what... So submission doesn't mean you stay in that situation. In fact, let me just say this. Submission also doesn't mean that women everywhere should submit to men and that a man should never be um, supplanted by a woman in the workplace because she's a woman. That's not what it means. Paul is only talking about the marriage relationship and the marriage relationship only. So understand that. And notice that verse 18 is addressed to women and women only. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's her verse, not the husband's. Husbands, this means that this verse is your wives to obey. It's not yours to demand. So it's for her to obey. If she's not doing it, all you can do other than keeping your Bible open to Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3... Every, every chance you get, all you can do is try to be the kind of leader that it would be a joy to submit to. And then 1 Peter 3 tells the other side of the story. If the, the wife is married, Christian married to an unbeliever, that she submits to him in order to show him the beauty of the gospel. It's a beautiful, amazing picture. So what submission does mean is it means that the wife allows the husband to steer um, or give space for the husband to steer the family and spiritual matters. Spiritual leadership is not a, a sexist right. Spiritual leadership, hear this men, is a God-given responsibility that we are going to be accountable for. There's going to be a lot of men one day when you stand before God and God says, why were you a weakling? Why were you a coward? Why were you not the father that you were supposed to be? Why were you not the, the husband you were supposed to be? And many men are going to stand before God and have nothing to say whatsoever. Yet we are the responsible ones. And there is a weight of responsibility that rests upon us as husbands. In fact, verse 19 says it very clearly. Husbands are called to love our wives. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this, as Christ loved the church. So here's what we know about our Lord. We love him. Why? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We love Christ. We submit to Christ. We give ourselves totally to him because we know that he loves us. We know that he has nothing but good for us, even if it doesn't feel like good. So the point is the husband is supposed to lead like Jesus to be the initiator and the wife is supposed to respond and react as the church. I love what John Stott said. He said, if headship means power in any sense, then it's the power to care, not the power to crush. It's the power to serve, not the power to dominate. And all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Jesus Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. And what that means is this, laying down your life doesn't just mean being willing to die for her. But let me just say this, Husband, if you were to live your life where your wife knows that in any moment you would lay down your life for her, you would give your life for her, she would follow you anywhere. She'd follow you anywhere. If she knows that and comes to trust that about you, she will follow you anywhere. But it, it even goes further than that. It means daily, hear this, men, loving your wife as Christ loved the church means daily putting her needs above your wants. You put her needs above your 
wants. It means that in decisions, you give her needs, preferences to your wants or desires. Men, let me say this. If I'm serving my wife as Christ loved, loves the church, then 90% of the places and areas that we disagree, I'm going to do what she wants. Because we're disagreeing not over spiritual things, we're disagreeing over what we want. And I'm going to back off, and I'm going to let her, in that moment, her needs be met, and love and support be given, and I'm going to show her that my desires are not superior to her needs. Her needs are superior to my desires. Or to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, who said... In the marriage relationship, men, you wear a crown, but the crown you wear is first and foremost one of thorns. So a husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband who loves her and cares for her and sacrifices for her creates a relationship that the world will not look at and go, ugh, that's so archaic. That's so um, ridiculous. I cannot believe that's so disgusting. It, it's amazing how so many people are turned off by the biblical definition of marriage, yet they are absolutely drawn in when they see a living example of it. They would say, that is so archaic. That is so gross. That's so disgusting. But when they see it actually worked out, living and doing exactly the way it's supposed to do, they are drawn in by the love, service, sacrifice of the husband and wife all for the glory of God. Let me just say this. The ultimate goal, brothers and sisters, of your marriage is not your happiness, but your holiness, by which you understand the way Christ loves us and we are loving each other in that way. So we must cultivate our greatest earthly relationship Marriage between a husband and a wife, desiring that. But then secondly, we must nurture our God-given family relationship. So now, um, children, youth, if you think you weren't involved here, now you become involved. For in verse 20, um, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything. Any, any word, parents? Any word? Um, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged so let that sink in for a second when we talk about family relationships when we talk about bringing God into your family what we're not talking about is just putting a plaque up in your house that says as for me in my house we will serve the Lord now that might be good but that's not enough not even good enough to have a picture of Jesus whoever that picture might look like um, in your house somewhere that's not enough the whole picture is what we're talking about is an intentional time-consuming process. In fact, let me say this. Husbands and wives, one of the things that I have to constantly remind myself of is when I'm headed home after a long day at work, my work is not over. I do not walk in my house and become an absolute vegetable and ignore everything. No, my greatest work is just beginning. For my greatest work when I get home is to love my wife and to love and lead my children. And if we're not careful, we become vegetables and we forget that and we ignore that and we ignore that to our absolute peril. And let me just go a step further. Nothing in your life is going to reveal your need for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ like being a parent. 
Some of you are going to get that now, and some of you will get that later. Nothing in my life shows me how much I need God's forgiveness and his grace like being a parent. For good night, how many times I fail and falter, and I don't have the words, and then the words I do have aren't the words I should use. And so I fail in all of those ways, and I miss the mark. And then I have to learn that I have three children, but yet I can't parent them all the same because they're different. And therefore, they require different things from me. And it's amazing how God does that and makes them different. I mean, we had Morgan first, and we... Like, she's the strong-willed child, so we bought the strong-willed child by James Dobson, and we're reading it, and we're reading about kids setting their parents' cars on fire, and we're like, well, maybe she's not that bad. I think we can deal with this. Uh, We just have to handle this in this way and that way. And then then we had Madison, and of course, Morgan. If you try to correct her, she'll come right back at you, and boom, boom, and you say harsh words to Madison and she begins to cry immediately and then you think you're doing a great job and then you realize, man, is she manipulating us? Is, is she winning in this? You know, and it begins to play with your, your minds and then, of course, we adopt Malachi from India and that, that sucker, he just runs the house um, in every way possible. This morning he was in our bed and Misty told him um, to stop kicking and he sat straight up and said, Mom, you're being rude. And we're just like, what in the world? What was happening here? But we have to learn to um, handle kids and to parent them differently. But let me backtrack for just a second. And I'm going to say something that maybe might hit us in a way that it probably needs to hit us. So God designed marriage and the marriage relationship to function in a certain way. One man, one woman, in a monogamous relationship for life. And this design was God's method for us raising our children. Yet the problem is, as we tinker with marriage, as we tinker with what that looks like, it leads to the destruction of not just our marriage, but devastating destruction and results for our children. In fact, if you'd have told me this 15 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you, but it's amazing. The world that we live in is so crazy and so filled with sin that the thought process is this. Let us first change the archaic ways and views of marriage. And then once we get that mindset, the majority in the world, then we'll begin to start and change the whole picture of what it means to be a child. And Brothers and sisters, this is where we are. We are using our children as science experiments. And we are just creating them and and using them and making them. Instead of nourishing them, instead of getting out the weeds, we are just letting weeds just grow up all around our children and saying, well, whatever is going to happen is going, going to happen. And it's creating chaos. It is not creating growth for our children. It is creating harm for them. And just think about this. We live in a culture that kicks against submission and we live in a culture that kicks against obedience. Yet we are told, children, obey your parents. And here's what I know. And parents, you might amen with me here. You might not. But here's what I know. You don't have to teach a child to disobey. Amen? You don't have to teach a child to disobey. Just think about it. What if other creatures in the created realm rebelled against their parents like our children do. So just for a moment, I want you to think about a gazelle in the African desert having this conversation with its parents. 
Mom and dad, I don't care what you say. That lion is not going to kill me. I think I can outrun it. It won't hurt me. Mom and dad, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just stupid. I don't have to listen to you. If that was the conversation, let me tell you what would happen to that young gazelle. He would be on a National Geographic show that we would be watching in horror, yet we could not take our eyes off what was happening to that gazelle in that moment. So here's the picture of what we know. It kind of blows our minds. But one of the constants I think that every parent can attest to is that children, not just other people's children, but their children, are a rebellious species. <laughs> a rebellious children, and the reason is because of sin. The Bible says we are brought forth in iniquity. We don't have to teach our kids to be disobedient. We have to teach them to be obedient. We have to teach them to obey. Yet, let me just throw something at you real quick. And parents, I want this to hit right where it needs to hit. If you ask most parents what needs to be done in order for your kids to grow and to be Christ-like, here's what most parents are going to say. Good and right discipline, Christian education, whether it be um, homeschool or actually Christian education. Some would uh, go as far and say, hey, continual Bible study with your kids, praying with them, which are all good things. But let me tell you what parents normally don't say is the one thing they should say, being an example. Being the example. The example is the first principle of parenting. It's all about biblical leadership is setting the example. Brothers and sisters, understand this. Your kids are not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. They're going to do what you do. You can, I, I've heard so many parents so many times, do as I say, not as I do. Your parents, your kids are going to do what you do. It's just who they are. They're following in your example. When parents practice what they preach, God gives them a moral authority in their children's eyes where they're able to lead in a godly direction all for His glory. So the reason we teach our kids obedience, the reason we even show them obedience is because we want to engage them in a loving and supportive way because, as it says here, it pleases the Lord. Let me just speak to our teenagers real quick. When you are young, even where you are now, your parents represent the authority of God to you. And what I mean by that is this. They stand for a time, your parents stand for a time as God over you. You learn to obey God by learning to obey your parents. And you learn to disobey God by disobeying, disobeying your parents. You learn to submit to God by submitting to mom and dad. You learn to not submit to God by not submitting to them. Just let that sit over you for just a second. And then let me remind you that you are the gazelle heading out towards the lion saying, he's not going to eat me, and just knowing what's coming. So for us, let me just bring it back to parenting. And let me just say this very clearly. What is the end goal of parenting? If I were to ask parents, some would say, well, the end goal is I just don't want my kids to go to jail. That might be a low bar. Just, just so you know, that might be a low bar. Some might say, well, good behavior is what I'm looking for, a good education, one day a good job. Or I want my kid to be a great athlete to excel in this or, or that kind of extracurricular thing. Or I just want my kid to be a good citizen and, and that way. And all of those things are, are good. But 
The end goal of Christian parenting is that we are nurturing and are protecting our kids' mind and hearts in a way that they will grow to love God, to serve God, and give their lives to Him. That is the goal. And let me tell you the danger. And if you don't believe me, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But the danger is there is coming a day where your children and my children are going to stand before God. Every person in this room and every child in this room is going to stand before God. But, parent, they're going to stand before God believing everything that we taught them to be important is actually important. And if we are not careful, they are going to have been taught everything else is important other than the righteousness of Christ and His glory. They're going to be taught that baseball is the most important thing, sports is the most important thing, athletics or academics or this or that is the most important thing and those things are going to burn right out of their hands and they're going to stand before God as spiritual beggars and according to the word of God it's going to be our faults it's going to be our faults because of what we taught them was the most important thing and let me just say this let me lay this out there the first Baptist church of Ocean Way is not going to stand before God one day and give an account of the spiritual discipline and the spiritual development of your children you are. You are. Oh, to God that we would understand the time needed, the nurture needed, the protection needed for us to nurture the God-given family relationships that God has placed upon us. And it is a grave responsibility, but it is a magnificent responsibility to create and to develop and nurture children for the glory of God. So we have marriage, we have parenting and childing, what it means to be a child and then lastly we must glorify God in every occupational relationship meaning with our work what that means and let me just stop for just a second and acknowledge the elephant in the room when it comes to these verses so in verse 22 Paul addressed bond servants some of your bibles actually say slaves slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters we come to chapter 4 and it says, Masters, treat your bondservants or slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So what do we do with that? What do we do with verses in Scripture that address slaves and slave masters? How do we handle that? And let me tell you where we start. There's a tendency for all of us in this room to view slavery as something that happened either 50 years ago, something that happened in our past while forgetting the fact that there are over 27 million slaves that still exist today. That still exist today. People who are in the sex trade, forced labor, inheritable property that are still living in slavery. And the reality, those of us who have been redeemed from the slavery of sin should be the foremost champions of fighting for the freedom of those who are still enslaved. That's the biblical picture. Yet let me tell you something that might surprise you. Nowhere in Scripture does, does the Bible universally condemn slavery. So nowhere in Scripture does the Bible universally condemn slavery. So don't start looking because you're not going to find it. But just understand this. Just because the Bible doesn't ultimately condemn it doesn't mean it condones it. Doesn't mean it just says, okay, do it. In the same breath, the Bible does not approve or command slavery in the same way the Bible does not approve or command Christian persecution. But understand what I'm saying here. The whole point of the Bible is to teach people to live where they were. 
Some of them meant living in slavery. Some of it meant living in Christian persecution, living in the midst of a very difficult place. And let me just say this. Again, the purpose of this book is not about societal reform. The purpose of this book is salvation. That's the point of this book. So if you're trying to read and say, well, I can't believe the Bible wouldn't address this. The overall goal of this is not reformed throughout our culture. The overall point of this is our salvation, our great need. But let me just say this as well. What many fail to understand is that slavery in biblical times was very different than the slavery that was practiced a few centuries um, ago in many places of the world or that is still going on. So the slavery in the Bible was not based on your skin color or your race. Slavery in the Bible was always, just about always, um, was about your economics. The fact that you were in a place where you could not pay your bills. So what you would do is you would sell yourself and your family into slavery in order that you may be taken care of by the person who purchased you. And they would take care of you. But here's a beautiful picture. When we think about the Bible, and I hate saying beautiful picture, but there was, there was a place for upward mobility in the midst of this biblical picture. Think about Joseph. Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt. And before the story is over, he's the number two guy. Upward mobility. Daniel was sold as a slave to Babylon. And before we know the end of the story, he's the number two guy. There's times in the New Testament where doctors, lawyers, politicians, we read about, they are slaves, yet there's mobility there. But even greater in Scripture than the picture of upward mobility is the, the promise given in Scripture of freedom for the slave. There's freedom there. And let me just make it very clear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is we just need to turn a blind eye. Or what I'm not saying is this comes natural. What I'm not Here's the point. Every single person who has ever been born into this world is born into the image of God. And if we ever see them differently based on their skin color, then we are seeing them with sinful eyes and not with righteous eyes. And, and before, we, before we come up and say, well, I'm not racist, but... Just know everything you say after but is always racist. Um, just so you know that. I'm not racist, but everything you say after that is usually 99% always racist. So stop there. Or I have a black friend, so because I have a black friend, I'm able to say this. No, no, we're not. It's not based on that. So we have to understand the picture of being in the image of God and fighting for the rights of all citizens and fighting for a way that points people to the gospel. But let me just get back here to the last point, which is we glorify God in every occupational relationship, which means outside the home in our work life. In fact, look with me here. It says in verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is not just concerned about what takes place within these four walls. God is concerned with what takes place in the world. In fact, let me show you an example. In the book of Acts, there are 40 listed miracles that take place in the book of Acts. 39 of them take place outside of the church. So of all of the miracles in the book of Acts, 40 of them 
39 don't happen within the four walls of the church. They happen outside. They happen in the homes of believers. They happen as believers are at work doing the things that God has called them to do. It's a beautiful picture of the way that God has this thing rigged. He set it up to bring himself glory. And let me just say this, regardless of how you feel about your job, even regardless of how you feel about your boss, you have, as a child of God, you have a higher purpose and you have a greater boss than the one that you are presently serving on this earth. Your higher purpose is the glory of God and your boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do all things for him. You're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it for men. Here's a great way of thinking about it. Hear this. Worship God, not your profession. Don't worship your profession. If I were to ask most of you, tell me about yourself. What's your identity? Most of us just, we default back to, well, this is what I do. This is what I do. This is, and it's like, no, who you are is not what you do. Who you are is greater than what you do. We can't, if, if we fall into that default setting of my identity is found in what I do for a living, there is disaster there and there is disappointment there. Yet let me go in the opposite direction real quick. Also, in the same way, don't look at your job and just look at it with contempt and say, I hate my job. Nothing is accomplished in my job. I hate it altogether. I love the words of Martin Luther who said this. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and pray the words, give us this day our daily bread, God always gives us our daily bread. But... He does it by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, and the person who prepared our meal. Meaning that our job provide an opportunity to bring God's presence to the world around us, to meet needs in the world around us. Every day when I'm dropping Madison and Malachi off at school, I leave the school and I pray. I pray protection over our schools, but I also always pray this. I say, God, I, I pray for any student in this school that does, or in our schools that don't have any gospel light in their homes, that you will take the light that you have placed in our schools and may that light shine bright and impact the hearts and lives of those children who have no gospel influence. And that end... In and of itself, brothers and sisters, is the picture of God's pattern of putting us in places all over the world. All for his glory. Don't begrudge your work. Revel in the fact that God has given you an opportunity to do something for his glory. And do it for the glory of God. Last week, Jordan taught and ended on verse 17. Let me just read that one more time. So Colossians 3.17, and it says this. Whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me just leave it here. Whatever you do. In our marriage relationship, we do to the glory of God. In our parenting relationship, we do to the glory of God. As children doing that relationship, we do it to the glory of God. And in our jobs, we do it for his glory and his alone. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to call... Kyle up and just enter into a time of invitation where we just apply what God has given to us. So let's, let's pray. Father, we need you. We thank you for your word. Even when it's uncomfortable, Lord, even when it doesn't hit us in a way that we like how it sits, we thank you, Lord, that your word is greater than our opinions. 
Lord, in fact, your word says, let God be true and let every man be a liar. If we ever try to stand against your word, help us to realize, Father, that if your word ever comes at our opinion in a way that doesn't seem right, help us to know in that moment that it is not your word that's wrong, it's our opinion. And help us to throw that opinion away, God, so that we might rightly approach whatever that subject is, God, um, for your glory and for our good. And we pray today, Lord, that we would have approached the subject of, of marriage, God, for our good and for your glory. The subject of being a parent, God, for our good and for your glory. The subject of what it means to obey our parents and the Lord for our good and for your glory. And what it means for us to do all things to the Lord and not for men, to the glory of God, for your glory and not for ours. God, have your way. God, transform our world, Father, we pray. Through our marriages, through our families, through our homes, through our jobs. In Jesus' name, amen.